This is KMGP 101.1 LPFM Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right. Time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to this special summertime edition of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. I am Felix Bonnell. Tonight we'll be digging into the archives of the old Columbia Conversations podcast, which I used to produce and host for the Washington State Historical Society. Now later on we're going to hear from University of Washington Professor Emeritus Quintard Taylor. He's the founder of BlackPast.org and author of several books. But first up, my conversation with historian Megan Ackerman about her work to understand the role of women in the old Olympia Brewery. I spoke with Megan Ackerman by phone and asked her to begin with the basics of Olympia Brewing Company history. Leopold Schmidt, who founded the Olympia Brewing Company, was a German immigrant. He made his way like many Germans to the West Coast. He made multiple stops along the way. He, he started out immigrating to Missouri, and then he made his way to Montana uh, during the gold rush, before, uh, before the copper rush, and was operating a brewery there for about 20 years before he visited Olympia, and then decided to, you know, pick up shop and, and move to the Northwest. So Olympia started out as the Capital Brewing Company in 1896. It changed its name and adopted the It's the Water slogan, both in 1902. And then it shut down in 19, on January 1st, 1916, um, because of statewide prohibition. And um, then opened up again in 19, early 1934 as uh, prohibition was repealed. Stayed in Schmidt family ownership up until 1983 when Pabst bought it. And then um, the, the whole consolidation of mega breweries and, and the, the brands that we still know today is, is massively convoluted. But um, Pabst owned the Olympia brand and it, it sort of changed hands over, over the ensuing decades. But Pabst still owns the Olympia brand. But in 2003, when the facility actually closed in Tumwater, the facility was owned by Miller, and Miller closed the plant down. So it's been closed, uh, no longer brewing Olympia beer in Tumwater or in Washington at all since 2003. Um, uh, so I guess technically Olympia beer, yeah, ceased to exist in 1983. Um, but yeah, so it's still, it was brewed up until last year or this year, 2021, early 2021, Paps still owns the brand and was contract brewing it out with Miller. Um, and they, uh, I guess, were not making the profit that they wanted. And so it is, they have discontinued making Olympia beer for the first time in 125 years, with the oh. exception of Prohibition. So this will be the first Christmas then and the first New Year's celebration without fresh Oli in a long time, I guess. 
Yes. <laughs> wow, that's bizarre. What um, what is? I mean, you know, I maybe this is kind of a dumb question, I guess. Um, I have a bunch of dumb questions. That's kind of the theme of the show. The show. Um, <laughs> so the uh, so if you had to describe Olympia beer, like the flavor, the taste, or the kind of beer it is, where does it fit into that the spectrum of other beers that are either still available now or that were available, say, 30, 40 years ago when there were a lot of local beers still being made in, uh, in and around the West? Uh, well, I'll, I will admit, first and foremost, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I actually don't. <laughs> I don't like beers. Uh, generally, but okay. uh, I've had enough Olympia to be able to describe it. And it's definitely a watery <laughs> lager. <laughs> uh, people love to, to tell me their m- memories related to it. And it usually starts out with, I used to love drinking Olympia in the summertime, you know, floating down the river because you could have a whole bunch and not get drunk. <laughs> it was a, um, for its time, especially uh, was a relatively low calorie um, and low alcoholic content beer. And that it, it always was a light beer. They always called it that. Um, a, I believe the, the very first um, line of Olympia beer, if you want to call it that uh, label of it was pale export, even though it was basically just a light lager, like a Bud Light mm. or a Budweiser, I guess, but more, maybe along the taste lines of Bud Light, brewers had to reserve 15% of what they made to go overseas during World War II. So then soldiers became much more acclimated to this lighter beer. Then when they came home, combination of um, that generation being more okay with drinking socially um, and and really rejecting prohibition, drinking more responsibly and drinking at home versus in saloons, and then coupled with just being more used to lighter beers. That's why the the uh, at least for me the image of uh, you know a working class light beer that somebody's dad or grandpa drank for decades and just was dedicated to one brand it becomes prevalent during this time because that's really that generation of people. Yeah, I mean, my memory goes back. I'm, I'm in my early 50s. My memory goes back to probably the 70s, 80s, and it was sort of, the beers all sort of seemed the same. They all kind of seemed like they were, you know, mm-hmm. whether it was Pabst or Budweiser or Rainier or Lucky or Olympia, they all kind of looked the same color, mm-hmm. and they seemed like they were just mm-hmm. consumed. There was a lot of brand loyalty, um, and there wasn't a lot of variety, and there wasn't really a lot of um, exotic beers being uh, offered anywhere, I guess, unless you're looking for it. And you certainly didn't see that on television or in, or in print advertisements back in the 70s and 80s, until maybe the late 80s. But No, it huh. it really didn't exist until the until the 80s with the craft beer huh. Interesting. One more dumb question. What did they do during Prohibition at the Olympia Brewery? They did all kinds of stuff. Um, the actual facility that made the beer, it for a couple of years became a fruit juice processing plant. So the uh, Leopold Schmidt, who he died in 1914, right? Um, just a couple months before prohibition was passed actually, but his son who took over the Schmidt um, family generally, they had a plan in place. They owned multiple breweries besides Olympia and they had a plant in Salem, Oregon. And so they started in Salem with this, pilot program of making Loganberry juice called Loju. And they uh, sold well enough that they decided to go forth and they made some, some of, 
Oh, no, they didn't make any loganberry juice in Tumwater, but they made this apple juice beverage called apple juice in Salem as well. And then they decided that that's what they would do in Tumwater. So for a couple of years, they made uh, th- there was an apple juice and, and sort of one that they carbonated that was more like a sparkling cider. Um, and then for multiple reasons that had to do with um, unions and World War I sugar prices, uh, and different things like that, that eventually shut down in 1922. And then the actual uh, facility hasn't been used to make it a beverage since. But they owned stock in creameries, like a lot of brewers did. And they had um, a creamery and an ice plant, or at least a cold storage. They had hotel businesses, actually. Um, Peter G. Schmidt, the second president of Olympia Brewing, he sort of founded a consortium. I think it started just as five hotels. He and his brother owned a couple hotels, and then them and a few other Washington hotel owners got together and made Western Hotels, uh, which is now Weston International. Oh, yeah. No, wait wait a second. So Weston, Weston, the big hotel chain, began as an offshoot of a Schmidt family business? It did. Huh, had no idea. Okay. And it was headquartered in Seattle for a long time. I know until probably sometime yeah. in the 30, 40 years ago, I think they moved elsewhere. But that's, that's nah, I had no idea. Yeah, well, I mean, nobody else really knows that either. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I think they also had um, bus lines. But yeah, so they um, mostly kept to the food and beverage industry, like a lot of other brewers. Um, but they had a lot of things going on as a family. You know, they just, they did just fine financially. Mm. Um, and then, but, you know, beer was always number one. So as soon as that repeal was on the horizon, they uh, wanted to build a new facility and get up and running as fast as possible. And they did. They had some backing by Emil Sick. Plus they, um, you know, they had ads in the paper and they sold shares of stock for a dollar and had enough capital to build an entirely new facility to have the first beer to be able to go out uh, on the market January 1934. And so where do women fit into this story? I mean, this is the, the larger story of the brewery. You've told us here pretty well. But where does mm-hmm. where, in your research, what did you find the, what the role of women was from the earliest days up until the, uh, I guess, the final days of the brewery in the work that you've done? Mm-hmm. So the earliest days are still kind of a mystery. I wish that I had more answers for before Prohibition. Um, you know, the article itself talks about the Schmidt women before I get into women during World War II because I've really never been able to find anything about women working at the brewery before Prohibition, Hmm. which is not uncommon for breweries. Breweries did not really hire women, but I have seen photographs of women with groups um, in front of the brewery or they all seem to be at the bottle works. I have no idea who those women are, if they maybe worked in packaging or I, I have seen also an image from a book about Rainier that had women who would put the foil on the bottleneck, you know, in packaging. So I don't know if, if there were women hired um, at the brewery to do something like that. That's something that I have not been able to uncover. Um, But women did work at the brewery starting officially, I guess, post prohibition. There, there was at least one woman who was uh, Peter G. Schmidt's private secretary during prohibition, who also then worked at the brewery. But, Women were working in the office as soon as repeal 
um, and the brewery got up and running, but really it wasn't until World War II with the labor shortage that there were about 10 women working in the office and about 10 women who were recycling and recrimping bottle caps because of the metal shortage. Um, and then uh, when World War II ended, the union that represented bottlers disallowed women. So it seems from what I was able to cobble together that those women just lost their jobs. They didn't shift over to the office or anything. Yeah. Um, and then really from, uh, from about 1945 to 1975, the women that worked at the brewery were all in the office. Hmm. And then um, in the mid-70s, with Title Seven, I believe it was, um, but with the Equal Rights Act, um, women were then again allowed to work in production. So they were they just started to hire women um, in mostly in the bottle house um, in packaging, um, and it was still very very male dominated. Um, and then really, I think that started. I wouldn't say ramp up, but it was after Pabst bought the brewery that, you know, more women were working in production and there were women in the gift shop. Um, and I, I think that there were some women tour guides, but it was still very heavily women were in the office and, and men worked in production and, and brewing. There were never any women brewmasters. Now, I mean, in, in terms of the other research that might be available at other breweries in other parts of the country or maybe other parts of the world, do we know how this stacks up against those other breweries? Was was Olympia more or less welcoming of female staff than other breweries or about the same? Um, from what I've seen, at least as far as the very early years, um, the 70s, that is, um, at, women going back into production or into production, I guess, for the first time, Olympia was a little bit ahead of its time. Hmm. Um, and I, I just, my only reference for that was there is a, um, a recent book out about women in brewing. And there was a quote from a woman who worked at the Theodore Hams uh, brewery, which Olympia acquired in 1974. And she said in that book that, women, and she was a, a chemist, I believe. So she was doing lab work and she wasn't even allowed on the plant floor to collect the samples that she needed to test. Huh. And that changed when Olympia acquired hands, you know, they could at least go get their own samples. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I would say that there were maybe, maybe a, a, a foot ahead of the rest, but it, it seems that it was average to, I think, that the brewing industry as a whole, based on everything I've read about women who pioneered craft brewing, that really was still a, a very male-dominated and sexist industry. Um, so I, I can't say for certain that Olympia was like, you know, leagues ahead of anybody else, but I don't think it was anybody. Yeah, it wasn't worse than anybody else for sure. <laughs> And then nowadays in the current sort of brewing industry, which is much more diffuse and diverse, I imagine, same, some of the same issues still, or is it a little more uh, integrated than, than it was in terms of gender? Um, from what I have read, it's, it is much more diverse, but there's always room for improvement. Um, and that there is even still apparently just a lot of 
um, incredulous men <laughs> that are surprised by women who brew beer or, you know, just maybe with unconscious bias, assume that somebody running a brewery or um, a pub is doing so with her male partner. But generally, um, I think it is more accepted, at least in the Northwest, um, that women are entering brewing and cider making much more often than they were. And there was one person you mentioned in your story in Columbia that I, I was interested in. This is a woman named is Edie who had the some of the um, kind of the recipes and the newsletter sort of stuff. Tell me about her. So Edie um, is one of my favorites. She was, I guess her, her, I don't know what her official title really ever was. She's referred to as the home economist or the coffee maker. She had been working at a local high school as, you know, a, a lunch lady, I guess. I don't know if she was, <laughs> I don't know what the proper term for that is yeah. these days, but I think, you know, she was making lunches at the high school <laughs> and one of the vice presidents, one of the Schmidt family members um, somehow knew her or heard of her and asked her to work at the brewery. And so she started working there in 1957, I think. And she made lunches for the executives um, at least twice a week, you know, when they had lunch meetings. And otherwise, uh, she brewed coffee for the office twice a day. And um, I imagine did some sort of decorating or other kinds of things around the office. I believe her job was full time. So I really don't know what they filled her time with. But um, she stayed there until 1971. And in that time, yes, she had her own column in the It's the Water News newsletter, uh, which was basically every edition was like its own magazine. So it, it was really nothing to shake a stick at. Um, but she had Edie's Gourmet and would, she has a lot of recipes in there that don't include Olympia beer, but a lot of them were made with Olympia beer. She also had, you know, fashion and holiday advice and uh, decoration ideas and had how to uh, style food, things like that. It's um, it's pretty fun to look at. I have recreated about twenty of her recipes. Oh wow! None of them have ever turned out. <laughs> <laughs> and um, honestly, I think it's just because food from the sixties is disgusting. But I try. What um, now was she doing stuff for public consumption, or was everything she was doing for internal consumption in terms of those articles and recipes and stuff? It was internal. There were at least one time that she did go on the local TV station and made uh, a recipe for steak. Um, but that was the only mention of it, but no, she, I think just did it for fun. She just was um, enthusiastic about cooking and homemaking and found her niche at work. And what was her full name? Edith Bryn. Bryn. Okay. And so now back to these recipes that you tried, was there one that was particularly disgusting or particularly surprising that didn't turn out? Or what, what are we, what kinds of recipes are we talking about? Um, so one that I made was a Roquefort and ketchup and onion sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I'm not a fan of blue cheese anyway, but I was going to take one for the team. And it was, you know, Roquefort blue cheese mixed with some Olympia beer. So it was basically like a, bread mm. and then yeah ketchup and 
white onions <laughs> and it was horrible. <laughs> um, most of the recipes that I've made that are sweet, that don't have beer, they're just very, very, very sweet. You know, they have a lot of sugar by today's standards. <laughs> no, wait, that, so that onion, that onion dip spread stuff though, wasn't that, I mean, isn't that meant to be consumed with a really ice cold, like tall glass of Olympia? Probably. Yeah. So, but you didn't do it that way. You didn't. You didn't go for the cold beer along. I with didn't. It. I mean, okay. she didn't. She did not have that in her instructions. Okay. And I don't know okay. that an ice cold glass of Olympia beer would have salvaged that sandwich. All right. So, uh, what's next for you with the research you're doing on the Olympia Brewery? I have been working very slowly at a glacial pace of turning my master's thesis on the history of the brewery into a book into a, you know, a more well-rounded book. So, um, mostly that. Do you have, do you have a timeline for that for when that's when that book's going to be published or what's the next step with that? Or hopefully within the next few years, I've, um, worked with a, a publisher a little bit back and forth. I'm still working on some edits, but, um, hopefully, hopefully that will be done within the next few years. I've said every year for the last Five years. <laughs> yeah. Thanks again to Megan Ackerman, historian for the Olympia Tumwater Foundation. I'm Felix Bunnell, and you're listening to a special summertime edition of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM. We're going deep into the archives of the old Columbia Conversations podcast, which I used to produce and host for the Washington State Historical Society. It was a few years ago when I spoke with author, historian, and UW Professor Emeritus Quintard Taylor, founder of BlackPast.org. So you're retired now? Is that a congratulations? In order? I'm retired. Yeah, that's what emeritus means. Very nice. Means. Well, I, okay. I, I taught there from 1999. I, I held the position as chair, uh, Scott and Dorothy Willett's chair, from 1999 to 2018. Nice. I just uh, retired in June 30th, on June 30th of 2018. Wow, very nice. Well, congratulations. Thank you. First of all, when did you first visit the central area? My first visit to the central area or the central district, you know, there's still debates about whether or not we should call it the central district or the central area. I, I chose the district. Um, I first came be, uh, partly because I was teaching at Washington State University. The first job, the first academic job I ever had was an assistant professor at Washington State University. I was there from 1971 to 1975. And of course, if you're in Pullman, you want to seek every opportunity you can to get out of Pullman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I did, and we did. And so we came to Seattle as often as we could. We came to other places as well. I think one, of the, one of the interesting things about Pullman is that it's sort of being there encourages you to see the rest of the state. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> if you live in Seattle or Tacoma, you're less likely to travel across the state. So I, I got a very, very good sense, a high-level sense of the entire state of Washington early on. And so that that has helped to shape my perspective about uh, living in the Pacific Northwest and particularly in this state. So at any rate, to, to answer your question, I probably came to the Central District the first time in the summer of 72. I arrived in, in September of 70, 71. I went to, went right away to teaching at WSU, and then the, the first summer, by the first summer, I was uh, I was coming to Seattle. In fact, by the first summer, I was already involved in a history project that would sort of dominate my life forever. I, I again, I don't know how much time you want in terms of this interview, but this is great. but uh, I was teaching at WSU, and I was teaching a standard African American history course. 
And a student, a tall, lanky student at that time, I think he was on the basketball team, uh, named Billy Ray Flowers, asked me, you know, why is it when you people, and I didn't take offense at that, because he was talking about historians in this context, why is it when you people uh, discuss African-American history, you never talk about the West? And I said, and, you know, I was 22 years old. I was far too young to be in a classroom teaching. I said, because there is no black history in the West. And he responded, and, you know, he was brave enough to challenge me, and he he began to talk about his own family who had come out to Portland in the 1850s. Wow. And I was just so fascinated by that because I grew up in Tennessee, and I had gone to school in North Carolina and Minnesota. I had never heard stories about, you know, African Americans in the West, and certainly not in Portland. And so I was so fascinated with this. Uh, long story short, that uh, I decided that I wanted to do some research on this, and we got a small grant. I think the grant was probably five thousand dollars from Washington State University, and that allowed us to rent a, to get a car, uh, to have enough money to pay for a state car, a tape recorder, some tapes. And for me to hire a research assistant to help me go throughout the region interviewing African-Americans and people who knew African-Americans about black history in this region, in the Pacific Northwest. Hmm. And, of course, the, the obvious choice for the research assistant was Billy Ray Flowers. <laughs> and, so, and so armed with a state car, Billy Ray Flowers, a tape recorder, and not much overall knowledge about the region, we began to sort of... Find people, find African Americans who talk to, who would be willing to talk to us about their story. This was, this was a time when oral history was all the rage, and so we decided to do these oral history interviews. And I'll tell you, Felix, I, the, the first, the first interviews were in places uh, like Moscow, Idaho, north of Moscow, Idaho, huh. or in Walla Walla, or or in uh, small towns near and around Pullman, because. What, what was, to my surprise, to my shock, was that there were these blacks who had been, who were descendants of homesteaders who had settled in the area about the time of statehood. They had settled in both northern, uh, northern Idaho and in eastern, far eastern Washington. Uh, there was one family, one black family, and I'm blanking on the name now, but uh, it was, oh, the King family, and they owned, literally, they owned King Valley, which was probably five or 6,000 acres of land in a small valley, no more than 30 miles north of, of, of Pullman. Huh. I mean, imagine that. I, you know, who in Pullman, black or white, would have known that there would be black landowners uh, you know, that close to Pullman, Washington? And so that so, that's fascinated me. And so my point here is that I began to interview African-Americans in places they, we think they shouldn't have been, like Pendleton <laughs> and, and, and Walla Walla and Pomeroy and, you know, those kind of places. And it, it really dawned upon me that there's a lot of history that needs to be uncovered and needs to be told. And so that was really my introduction to this. And so I actually ended up coming to Seattle and Portland and Tacoma relatively late in the process of trying to construct or reconstruct this African-American history in the Pacific Northwest because we started in the small towns. We literally started started in the small towns. Uh, we ended up going to Roslyn, I think, oh, before yeah. we got to Seattle. And, and are those tapes still in the collection over at WSU, or where'd those tapes end up? You know, it's interesting you would ask that. You, yeah, they are, theoretically, they are in the collection at WSU. They have been in the collection since the 1970s. One of the requirements was that 
all the taped interviews would stay at the Washington State University Library. Yeah. And they, they've gone through various iterations, but as far as I know, they are still at the, at the library. Uh, the last time I checked was about five years ago when they were there. Were they ever digitized or made more accessible than just on the tapes or whatever they were on originally? You know, that's a question I can't answer. You'd have to check with WSU on that. We're talking interviews that took place in the early 1970s. Wow. That would, oh, uh, okay, okay. That, um, that, but that's yeah. on my list of things to check out. Yeah, and those, those interviews, in fact, led to our TV series, South by Northwest, uh, which was you know, the result of a grant that we received from what was then called the uh, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. Oh, and yeah. again, long story short, they funded us. They gave us $270,000, which is at that time an enormous amount of money yeah. to do a five-part TV series based upon our research, my research on African-Americans in the Pacific Northwest. And one of the stipulations was that we had to film on location or as close to on location as possible, you know, you know where the event happened. Huh. Um, and, <laughs> and this was the odd one. We had, to, we had to not use film, we had to use videotape. Ah. And, so, and so we were some of the first people to use videotape. Now you can actually see those, those episodes, all of those episodes, if you go to Black Pass. Uh, go to Black Pass, go to the multimedia page, and then just go to uh, South by Northwest. Oh, cool. I can't wait to check those out. Yeah. Now, but understand, these were done in the 1970s, okay? Oh, yeah, no, I, no, I understand. Yeah, no, it, it makes perfect okay. sense. I hope, I hope they were very different than TV today because it, it, was, it was more of a craft back then in some ways. Yeah, um, yeah, very much. I, so. I guess what I'm trying to get at is sort of the, the difference between the central area you visited as a civilian or a non-academic or not, mm. and, and, and the one that you discovered in your research over the next you know, 20 years, I guess. What, what were the things about the central district that you learned through your research that weren't visible on the surface when you were just visiting as a very young man, you know, 50 years ago? Well, to be honest, uh, uh, I, I don't know if I ever visited the Central District when I wasn't doing research. Okay. You know, that, <laughs> okay. that would be the reason for me coming over. Got it. Uh, but, you know, I had certain preconceived notions based upon my experiences back east. I mean, most of us came from back east. Most of us in Washington State, even to this day, somehow or another ended up coming out from Baggies or our parents came from Baggies. And so yeah. I was no exception. And I based a lot of my ideas about, quote, the ghetto uh, on what was going on Baggies. You know, I expected to see a densely populated uh, area. I expected to see very few non-blacks in the area. I expected to see much more dilapidated housing. Now, there certainly, there certainly was bad housing in the, in the Central District, but Certainly, it paled in comparison, no pun intended, but paled, paled in comparison to the south side of Chicago or New York's Harlem or any of the other major uh, black communities at that time. And so that was a shock. That was, that was actually a shock. Uh, the other thing, I don't know if it was a shock, but the other thing was that, you know, size matters. The, the Central District was a predominantly black community, but it was a relatively small community when compared, say, to Los Angeles or compared to Houston, Texas or Chicago, Illinois. And so that sort of determined a lot of what would happen or wouldn't happen in that area. Uh, I think on the other hand, uh, the, the research in the Central District, even though there were certain things that clearly were not similar to other areas of the country, there was a lot that was the same. And that was, 
that was not necessarily surprising, but it was in some ways disappointing. What are those things that would be the same? The same was the fact that there was high unemployment. There was particularly high youth unemployment. Uh, there was crime, uh, you know, significantly high crime. Uh, there were drugs. There, there was a drug scene in the Central District. Uh, it was essentially the conditions that you could find in any black community across America at the time. They could be replicated on a smaller scale, obviously, but they could be replicated in, in the Central District. And so, go ahead. I was going to say, were, and were there differences or similarities between how the Central District and the residents there related to the, the rest of the sort of more white city compared with similar communities in other parts of the country where there's a, a black community and black neighborhood surrounded by a, a Yeah, a yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I guess my... I guess the way I would answer that is that people in the Central District understood fully that even though this was a black community, they were in a sea of whites. In other words, the, the overwhelming majority of the people in Seattle, and certainly almost all of the power structure was white at the time, whereas in a place like you know Atlanta or, or New York or Chicago or Houston uh, or Los Angeles, uh, that would be a large enough black community so that there would be a cadre of, of black political leaders. I think at that time in the Central District, and this, this happened in 1967, uh, the first black person elected to the city council in the history of Seattle uh, was Sam Smith. And that's, that's relatively late, 1967. There were no other black office holders at the local level that I recall, and there were there were a couple of blacks that were in the state legislature, but that's it as far as political representation. And so that's, that was unusual. Again, it was, it was a difference in, in, in degree because certainly there was no country, there was no city in America that had proportionate black representation. So I don't want to suggest that some other Chicago had the representation it should have given the size of the population. But, but certainly when you look at the power structure of Seattle, it was it was exceedingly white, exceedingly white, and so that was the milieu in which African Americans had, had to operate. Yeah, um, again, I'm trying to answer your question. Yeah, no, this is great. This is, this is exactly the kind of stuff I was hoping to hear. And, and in the yeah. in, in the time you were observing, like say from the early '70s up until the time your books published, what were the most significant changes that happened in that neighborhood? Gentrification. Gentrification was beginning. <laughs> And actually, it was beginning in the 1970s and certainly in the 1980s, but it was almost imperceptible. I, I, was, I, I can relate a conversation that I had, and I'll use some names here. This is Constance Thomas. She's no longer with us now, but she, ironically, she was about my age now. She was about 71 or 72 when I talked to her. I, she was one of the people I interviewed, and I interviewed her because she was a second, I think she was second generation Seattleite, but her parents had come around World War One, and her parents, one of her, her father was from Jamaica, and he was actually active in the Garvey movement in Seattle. Yes, there was a small Garvey movement in Seattle, yeah. and, and she and her sisters were some of the earliest black students, and this was in the 1930s and 1940s. You have to check the dates, but they were some of the earliest black students to attend the University of Washington, so they had that distinction. And one of the sisters eventually became uh, one of the first people, one of the first black people uh, 
appointed to the legislature. She didn't run for a full term or she didn't win, but she was appointed to the legislature in 1966. So, so Mrs. Thomas was a fixture in the community. She was, you know, she was a leader in the community. She was someone that everyone looked up to, everyone talked to. Uh, and she told me something. She relayed a story. I was I was in a car with her and another uh, elderly black woman and uh, another researcher. It could have been Billy Ray Flowers. It could have been someone else. But and she said, "Mark my words. Understand that one day whites will recognize how valuable Central District property is, and they will start moving back here." Huh. And when she said that in 1972 <laughs> or 1973 or whatever that was, I said. This woman is, I didn't say she was delusional, but, but I said, I don't think that's going to happen. Because at that point in American history, understand, understand the way historians look at these things. At that point in American history, no community had ever gone from being black to being something else. Mm. Okay. That, you know, communities had this secession process. And by the time blacks got there, you know, nobody else would come in. Nobody else would be there. So gentrification except maybe in a few rare instances across the country, gentrification was an unknown concept. And she was explaining she was explaining the, country, uh, the coming gentrification, and I was completely dismissive of it. Hmm. I didn't believe it would happen because <laughs> it had not happened on a national level to, to that point. And now, of course, you can see what's happening in Seattle. Uh, I, I don't have the, the precise percentages in front of me, but... Uh, the Central District went from being an overwhelmingly black community. Although, let me be clear, it was never an all-black community. Yeah, it was never an all-black community. But yeah. becoming from being an overwhelmingly black community to now being a community where blacks are 10, 12 percent of the population. Yeah, that's a huge change yeah. in a relatively in a relatively short time, and it's a change that, as I said, I could not have anticipated. In nineteen, in the early nineteen seventies, that that just was not on the radar. This might be a dumb question, and probably kind of a dumb question, but if going back to your earliest time there in the central district, and then over those twenty years, you know, before your book comes out, are there clear examples of systemic racism that everyone just understands or there and or just accept, or for the most part, accept as just a fact of life in Seattle in the central district in the seventies? Yeah, 80s? I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to 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 wrap my mind around the idea of accept. I. Yeah. I think they understood that it was there, and maybe accept is the right word because they, you know, they understood they couldn't do very much about it. Uh, you know, one that comes to mind that comes right down to the day, police brutality. And understand that police brutality is an issue that's been in the black community even longer than going back to the 1960s. If you go to Black Pass and look up the Barry Lawson case, you will see an example of uh, three policemen, three white policemen, who were convicted of killing a black waiter in 1938. Now, what's unusual about this is it's 1938, but what's even more unusual about it is that a much smaller black community, a community of no more than 3,500 3, people, 3,000 to 3,500 people, mobilized and, you know, with allies, they couldn't have done it alone, but with allies, they were able to bring these three, uh, three white policemen to justice. You know what that? You know, you know how remarkable that is because it's hard to bring cops to justice today, and they were able to do this in 1938 in Seattle. 
Uh, and so the issue of police brutality is hardly a new one. It's hardly something that was discovered by Black Lives Matter or you know by our generation. It's been around for wow. a very, very long time in Seattle and all across the country, not just in Seattle, but all across the country. In that 1938 case, why were they able... Tell me a little bit about it and then tell me why that was well, able to go, happen. Go, well, most of what I know is actually on the website okay. in that entry, but you can, you can do research to find out more. Okay. But... From what I gather, uh, these policemen, well, first of all, understand that the working class black community tended to live in what we now call the international district. Again, the international, we think of the international district as always having been Asian, but actually it was always, it always had Asian groups, but it also had a significant black minority. And, and the blacks were essentially there because they worked on the railroads or they worked on the ships. And so they were close to the water. They were close to... Um, to the railroad station, and there was one black waiter, I don't know, he probably worked on one of the ships, one of the steamship lines, um, who was in a hotel, and this was, you know, this is a working class hotel, let's be clear, it was mm -hmm. almost like a rooming house, and somehow another, he had a confrontation, and there was an altercation between him and these policemen, and yeah, let's put it like this, the policemen say he fell down the stairs, Witnesses say he was pushed down the stairs and he was and he was killed. Mm. And it was going to be initially it was going to be just written off as an accident, and that was the end of it. But the the head of the Urban League, um, and I I'm blanking on his name right now. This is what happens when you talk to 71 year olds. <laughs> in an but, but you can get all of this yeah. information on Black Pass. That's why we have Black Pass because people <laughs> get old and they forget. Okay, but you can go to Black Pass and you can find out. I think his name was James Jackson. Okay, uh, he was head of the Urban League at the time. He was the first head of the Urban League, first black head of the Urban League because the Urban League started in 1930, and he did something very un-Urban League-like. You know, the Urban League is usually the organization that tries to find jobs for blacks and tries to uh, help blacks, um, you know, acclimate to the new urban environment. But in this instance, he decided to lead a coalition to find justice for, for Barry Lawson. And so he was able to locate a white uh, witness and bring him back from Portland and to have that person testify. And as a result, these, these three cops were convicted. Now, their sentences were eventually, if I recall, they were eventually commuted by the governor or they were pardoned by the governor. And so they didn't spend a lot of time in jail. But the very fact that they were arrested uh, is remarkable, as I said, given the fact that, you know, if you look at all of the people who've been killed by police recently under, uh, under unusual circumstances, <laughs> if I can say that, that uh, very few of those people have been brought to, brought to justice in, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. Okay. And in, so, in, in the time since your book was published, which is now going on, I guess, a little more than 25 years now. Yeah, that's 25 crazy. years now. That's crazy. The 90s already that long ago. What's, what else has changed in addition to the gentrification and other, what, what's different about the Central District now than, than it was 50 years ago or 25 years ago? Yeah. Well, I, I think gentrification is probably the 800-pound the uh, elephant in the room. I mean, you know, every. If, if we're talking about a black community and with black institutions nearby or present and all of a sudden the black population leaves, then that community is put under tremendous pressure. For instance, there, there have been debates going on for a while in the African-American community about whether to locate the main churches, um, um, First AME 
and uh, Mount Zion to relocate those churches to the suburbs. Yeah. Because essentially what has happened is that the black community has moved to the suburbs. And in fact, the uh, New Beginnings uh, Christian Fellowship is the largest black church, although they would argue that they're not a black church because they have members who aren't black. But they are the largest uh, church with a significant black membership in the entire area. And they're in Renton. Huh. They're almost at the Renton-Auburn uh, border. Interesting. So... <laughs> So, so in a sense, what has happened is that there, there has been this, there has arisen this kind of debate, and so it comes out of the larger question of gentrification. But this debate about whether or not the institutions can survive in an area where they are no longer, you know, they, uh, the, there's no longer a significant black population to support them. These were churches. These were landmark churches uh, that had a constituency around them. People walked to church. Uh, because people lived in the central district. Well, obviously, if you, you live in Renton or some of these other places, you can't do it. Let, let me give you a, a, a statistic or a factoid. Um, 2003. In 2003, um, we, had a, we reached a tipping point in terms of the African-American community. For the first time in the history of this region, this urban region, Seattle and its suburbs, there were more black people who lived in the suburbs than lived in the city of Seattle. Huh. I'm not just talking about the central district. I'm talking about the entire city of Seattle. Hmm. And so there is this, you know, gentrification. We talk about gentrification mainly as, you know, the constant, the, 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 how would we say this, the influx of whites into the community. The flip side of that coin, and for various reasons, which, which probably take more, much longer than we have time for, but, but the flip side of that coin is that African-Americans then began to spread out. The, the population uh, begins to spread over the entire metropolitan region. I mean, there are black folks in communities today. And remember, I came to Washington in 1971, and I marvel at the fact that there are black folks in, in these communities, small suburban communities, all over the region. You know, yeah, there are black folks in Mercer Island. There are black folks in the suburbs of... Uh, uh, Snohomish County. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at the huge black influx into places like Auburn and Kent, and certainly Federal Way. I mean, this is this is amazing. And so, so when we talk about the black community, we no longer talk about a a spatially defined area. We can no longer talk about you know a ghetto or a, a close knit, physically close knit community. Uh, we have to talk about. A community, and this is one of the arguments that I made a long time ago. We have to talk about the community as a kind of an intellectual construct instead of a physical construct. Yeah. In other words, in other words, the community is connected by a shared history, shared values, uh, shared issues, but the community itself is spread all over the metropolitan area. And and one of the examples, one of the best examples, well, two examples of this now. Uh, one is the Jewish community. And that's probably the first to experience this. And the other example is the Asian community, the Asian American community. Most Asian Americans do not live <laughs> in in the international district. Let's be clear. Yeah, they do yeah. not live in the international district and haven't for a long time. And by the same token, you know, obviously, you know, the original Jewish populations were essentially located in the central district. 
and they're not there anymore. Yeah, and, you know. and the you know the central district obviously is created in a time of segregation and redlining, and it's a you know it's mm-hmm. it's it's, it's a, it has its origins in these you know uh, oppressive policies and, and attitudes. Um, and given that it's 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 a, the population is now as um, uh, distributed as you described, it, I mean, what good things have been lost by losing that admittedly you know legally enforced oppressive, segregated community, what do you lose by the kind of uh, diaspora creation that you're talking about now? Yeah, that's, again, you ask very good questions. I, I, I don't think there are easy answers. I, one, of the, one of the ideas that I've toyed with, and you may be one of the first people I've shared this with, <laughs> the, there's the, the paradox, there's a paradox of a black community that is the result of segregation. We all will accept that it's wrong to say that that black people can only live in one area of the city. I don't think anybody would embrace the idea that, you know, black folks shouldn't be allowed to or shouldn't be able to live in any area of the city. But when black folks become dispersed like this, um, number one, they lose their traditional political power base. (laughs) Okay? They lose their traditional political power base. And to some extent, one could argue that the culture declines. If the culture is based upon you know, social activities around clubs and around music and around institutions that support those kinds of social activities. And there's no longer a concentration of black people in that area, then those clubs disappear as well. Then those social connectors disappear as well. Now, maybe they can be recreated elsewhere. And I think that certainly there are attempts to do that. But, you know, that, you know, at one time, Jackson Street, and this is, this is, long before the 1960s, uh, because it was declining in the 1960s. At one time, Jackson Street had this concentration of nightclubs. Now, not all of them were owned by black folks. Many of them were owned by Asians. But these were nightclubs that had some of the best jazz performers playing there on a regular basis in the country. Yeah. Not just in Seattle, but in the country. And these were both local performers uh, who played there and performers from across the country who played there. And the local performers were on a jazz circuit that extended all the way to China and Japan and the Philippines and, and the like. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the Chitlin circuit on the East Coast that ran from, you know, Miami or from Florida up to New York. Imagine a Chitlin circuit that extends all the way across to East Asia. Wow. You know, yeah. and so, so that, you know, when you have that kind of concentration, I know this may sound like I'm going a different direction, but no. but the essence of that community and that kind of jazz scene was was in a centralized area. Yeah. And what if you lose that centralized area? What if you lose that ability of all those folks to come together? Now we we can argue. Some some can argue that they will come together in their basements elsewhere, or they will come together. You know. But I think the fact, and I'll try to give you an example. Uh, and this is an example that has nothing to do with black folks, but look at uh, look at Austin, Texas, and look at all the clubs in a particular street. And I can't remember the street now, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I think Third or Fourth Avenue. Mm-hmm. You know, you go out of one club into another, or or in on Beale Street. That's an even better example. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are all these clubs that are next to each other, have been next to each other for decades and decades, and they they literally help to nurse and produce all these remarkable artists. Well, what happens when that goes away? And so I think that's one of the things you lose. I mean, you know, would I be an advocate for resegregation? Of course, of course not. Yeah. But, but I think 
you know, whenever whenever you move, whenever there's a, a change in demography, particularly of the size and significance of the gentrification that took, that is taking place in the central district, then there are things that you will lose. There, there's some, something that you're going to lose. The question is, can you reproduce it? Can you recreate it in some other form or fashion elsewhere? You know, and that's what the people are doing with the churches. Yeah. Uh, that's what they're doing with, you know, uh, with, with community art. They're, they're trying to say, can we have these kinds of community markers, community cultural markers without a spatial community? And, you know, I think about the International District survives as a destination with a bunch of restaurants, different kinds of Asian right. restaurants and everything. Right. And that's sort of, and that, nobody mm -hmm. really questions that or nobody thinks about that being some kind of segregated neighborhood, though. I mean, it's similar sort no, of arrangement, right? Um, yeah, it's a major tourist attraction. Yeah. Or yeah. you think about, you know, uh, you think about the jazz clubs in New Orleans. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> that's a major re revenue generator for the city. Yeah, if I could time travel, I'd visit Jackson Street in the 30s and 40s. That would be that would be one of my first <laughs> yeah. stops. Okay, um, I'll, I have one, one last question where I'll let you go, and I'd love to do this again sometime because this topic, it's not just some, like, single freestanding topic, this notion of race in Seattle and especially the black community, because I, 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 I will probably have questions in the future, and I hope I can reach out to you. Um, okay. Why is it there's only just a handful of books? Like there's your book, there's uh, Esther Mumford's fabulous Black Victorians book from 1980. She did a couple other smaller publications. But th I mean, there's, <laughs> I, you know, it's one handful I, of books. You're asking the wrong person. I mean, I think you have to ask the general uh, writing community, the general historical community. I, one of the things about historians, um, and I, I've thought about this, it has nothing to do with directly with your question, but I think it's apropos to your question. You know, one of the things about our profession is that no one assigns us a topic, <laughs> except when you're in the, writing a dissertation, but no one assigns you a topic after you become an assistant professor. You have complete freedom to come up with whatever topic you want, <laughs> and quite frankly, very few people have, have decided to study this. I, I won't say no one has decided, but very few people have decided to study. And, and the few people who have studied the dissertations don't turn into books. Now, I don't uh, know why. I mean, there are hosts of reasons that, you know, uh, well, all we do is end up speculating here as to why they don't turn into books. But, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I mean, as long as there's freedom, as long as academics have the freedom to write on anything they really want to, uh, they can determine what they will write on. One of, one of the big challenges, and let me, let me sort of rephrase it this way. One of the big challenges of, African-American history in the West is that there are still too many people who don't believe it exists. Hmm. In, other, in other words, <laughs> you know, African-American history is made somewhere else. It's made in the South. It's made in the Midwest. It's made in the East, in the big cities of the East. And, you know, with the exception of Los Angeles and maybe Oakland and San Francisco, you know, uh, African-American history to too many people just doesn't exist here. I, I remember when I first began to research the West. A, a colleague of mine, uh, who shall remain nameless, and it wasn't a colleague at the University of Washington, but a colleague said, oh, I just love stories of black cowboys as if that was the only thing, the only topic that we could write on in terms of the, the American West. You know, I, I have a second book, as you know, on, uh, In Search of the Racial Frontier. Yeah. And it focuses on African-American history in the West from the 1500s up until 1990. Yeah. And obviously, that's far beyond uh, the Cowboys, although by the 20th century, it's increasingly in urban history. 
Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I really can't answer that question uh, as to why there haven't been more books. I, I think you just have to, you know, plumb the interest of, you know, graduate programs and the students that are turning out and the individual graduate students. I, there's a, I, I'll give her a plug here, uh, the new executive director of Black Pass is Dr. Uh, Quinita Cobbins Modica. And she is, she's a, an amazing scholar. And I say that not just because she was my last graduate student, but because she is in her own right. And one of the books that she's writing right now, or the book that she's writing right now, which comes out of her dissertation, is a study of African-American women in Seattle in the World War II and period, the period from World War II right up until the beginning of the 20th century. No one, no one has written a book on African-American women like that, not just in Seattle, but anywhere in the country. So, so yeah, so it's, it's a question of what people choose to write on. Uh, and, 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 and in some ways, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but in some ways, there's a kind of fad element involved. And what I mean by fad, F-A-D, fad element, is that uh, essentially when a topic gets hot, you know, historians are attracted to it and they write about it. Yeah. If the topic is not perceived of as hot, they're not going to write about it. And the hotter the topic, the hotter the perception of the, of the topic, uh, you know, the perception that the topic is hot, uh, the more people are going to gravitate toward toward that, that, that idea. And so what we've tried to do is with our own writing to make African-American history in Seattle and in the West attractive. Um, we tried to say that there's a history out here that you can and you should investigate. But it's, up, it's ultimately up to others, not, not me, not, not, not uh, Dr. Cobbins, Modica, or a few other people to make that happen. We can only write, and we can hope that others will be interested. Maybe people who are experiencing this interview who will step forward and say, this is something I want to do. Yeah, because, you know, you look at the old, like, you read Bagley, you read Meany, any of the sort of the old white guys of Seattle history, mm -hmm. and there's nary a mention that I can tell. Occasionally they'll say, like, you know, uh, they'll mention, like, a, a Negro something. You know, it'll be some sort yeah, of very yeah. side note, but there's no recognition of any of any actual, you know, quantifiable uh, community of, of black people here in the in any of those, as far as I can, and, in and, my reading. Right, and, and I, will say, I will say there are two factors. Uh, number one, because the black population was very small, let's yeah. be clear on that. Yeah. But number two, because they were writing different types of histories. They were writing yeah. histories that tended to look at the elites because, let's face it, there wasn't a lot on the working class. There wasn't a lot on yeah. on women. There wasn't a lot on poor people in general. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, yeah. and black people simply weren't in those elite categories. Yeah, it's true. Well, listen, I, I, I really appreciate your time. I always appreciate a great conversation, and I appreciate you answering the questions uh, with the, the thoughtfully as you did. This is great. Thanks again for speaking with us, and people can find out more about you and more about your work at blackpass.org. That's correct? Uh, yes. yes. Terrific. And okay. I, I urge people to come to, to the website. We have over 6,000 pages of information, uh, and essentially we cover not just Pacific Northwest African-American history. We literally cover the globe. Thanks again to Dr. Quintar Taylor for joining me on the old Columbia Conversations podcast a few years ago. And thanks for joining me for this summertime edition of Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM in Seattle. Also want to thank Megan Ackerman from the Olympia Tumwater Foundation, who we heard from earlier. For more information about Cascade of History and other programs, please visit space101fm.org. We'll see you next time, and until then, I'm Felix Bunnell for Cascade of History.
That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. Oh, I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonell.